paper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk, pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it, it's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the media issues of the day, and we have some veteran journalists here to help you understand this. I'm Rick Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, now of the Upstate American, and I am here joined by Barbara Lombardo, formerly executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record of Troy, and WAMC's news director, Ian Pickus. And so here we are, just the three of us today. You know, a nice roomy studio and comfortable, ready for us to uh, analyze something. Get off your phone, Barbara. What are you doing? She's looking for the fourth. (laughs) I was was just trying to catch up on a story about local journalists arrested in an Alabama town for grand jury stories, so that if you were going to mention it, I could make it look like I knew what I was talking about. That is something. I have never heard of this in my career, I don't think, of journalists actually being arrested for publishing a true story. It's remarkable. A newspaper publisher and a reporter arrested for publishing an article that officials said was based on confidential grand jury evidence. I always thought that what you publish doesn't put you at risk of arrest. Somebody who leaked it might be. Am I wrong about that? I don't think you are wrong, but you might have an expensive legal bill trying to fight this up from court to court to court, I would imagine. Which would be the idea, I suppose, right? They're trying to just harass the journalists, especially if you're at a little tiny paper. This is the at Moore, A-T-M-O-R-E, the At Moore News in southwestern Alabama. Not a place, I suppose, that has a lot of insurance coverage for this kind of harassment by law enforcement. And you're correct. The U.S. Supreme Court, of course, this is not the U.S. Supreme Court of the last year, but the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly held that the First Amendment prohibits punishing journalists for publishing information that is of public importance, even if it was leaked by someone else. It seems rather fundamental. So it makes you wonder about the district attorney who brings the charge, because it seems to me that any first-year law student ought to understand that. But maybe I'm misunderstanding the capacity of politicians these days to try to evoke sympathy in the public, even if they can't achieve what they want to in a court of law. And to harass, and as Ian says, at a great expense to the small newspapers. And I have to speak carefully about this, but we are ourselves at WAMC dealing with a less intense but not unrelated situation where, you know, the advice that I've given to our reporters is to remember that you got to be really careful about the conversations you have and what you reveal about how you got certain information, especially when people might be your friend one day and end up being your enemy the day after. And that kind of hit home for us in a a recent situation. And I don't want to say too much more about it, but the bigger picture is our job is to find things out and print them. And getting arrested for doing that is a terrible precedent. It is. Well, and you know, it does come back to large 
stories as well, not just a small story in Alabama that was offensive to local officials about an investigation into a local school board's payments to a former school system employee. That's what was the uh, topic there. But, you know, I, I think the point you're making about people targeting the journalists for their reporting to harass them you know, there's a, an element of this also in what has been going on with Andrew Cuomo recently and his longtime trusted aide, his former chief of staff, Melissa DeRosa, who's out there in the public because she has a book out now that is recounting her experiences. And one of our listeners, Henry in Cornwall, New York, wrote in to inquire about this because he watched Real Time with Bill Maher, which had both Andrew Cuomo and Melissa DeRosa on talking about the investigation by Attorney General Letitia James into sexual harassment allegations involving Andrew Cuomo when he was governor, which led to Andrew Cuomo's resignation. And now there are questions being raised that they have raised, that is, about the New York Times coverage of this, alleging that, well, the Times didn't check their sources as carefully, there was other material, and it raises the question, according to our listener, that the former governor spoke about the domino effect of the James investigation, the Times reporting, and the cancel culture, supposedly, of the left that all led to a rush to judgment about him, negative publicity resulting in unfavorable opinion polling, causing his resignation. Blaming, in effect, the press for setting in motion the steps that led to Andrew Cuomo's resignation. It may be true to a certain degree. I think there was a kind of chum-in-the-water feeding frenzy that happened, but there are several things that are true. I lived through it day in and day out, and there were many allegations published in many different news outlets, many of them corroborated. The James Ultimate Report was one report. There was also a parallel investigation by the Assembly Judiciary Committee that was on the road to being an impeachment probe, and that doesn't even involve all the other allegations that did not end up in official reports but were reported by credible outlets. So to say that Tish James set out to get rid of Andrew Cuomo is a extreme shorthand for what actually took place here. Now, what happens when there are anonymous allegations that are not readily verifiable? There does become, you know, something of an avalanche. There's too much to keep track of. There were at one point a dozen different allegations against the governor. And for a general news consumer to keep track of all of them, difficult to do difficult to weigh the different sets of allegations. That's why you need an independent investigator. And for what it's worth, people probably don't remember now, but originally the governor at the time tried to set up an internal investigation of the allegations, which was rejected. And that's how it ended up in the hands of the attorney general and later the assembly judiciary committee. So <laughs> we got as close to what we probably could have gotten in terms of an independent body looking at it. Andrew Cuomo was the attorney general before he was a governor, and he knows how dangerous attorney general probes can be. That's why he resisted it. Speaking of attorneys general targeting governors, let's not forget that Andrew Cuomo basically took down Elliot Spitzer. Now, Spitzer took himself down a year later by having relations with a prostitute. That's what was the instant cause of Spitzer's resignation. But Andrew Cuomo set out to show that Governor Spitzer had misused state police 
in getting information about the activities on the road under taxpayer financing of the then Senate Majority Leader, Joe Bruno. When this was being investigated by Andrew Cuomo, I know that Cuomo had in the back of his mind what he wanted to find out, which was that the governor had misused state police. And sure enough, that's what the attorney general's probe found. So for Andrew Cuomo to complain that he was the victim of a rush to judgment is one of those pot calling the kettle black issues, you know, because he suddenly did that himself. But it does underscore the difficulty of trying to look back on these issues that were so thoroughly reported, and I think rather carefully at the time, and now second-guessing it with sort of uh, friendly interviews by <laughs> media, such as Bill Maher did, of Melissa DeRosa and Andrew Cuomo, right? <laughs> it's hard to come back to something that you've covered years ago. And readers, listeners, viewers don't want to hear all the detail of what they once read day after day after day. You can't give it to them that way. They will take the shorthand, which second guesses or sort of casts a new light on recent history. I'm always uncomfortable with the books by people who've been there, whatever, wherever they were, in people in power, in state government, in federal government, and um, instead of doing the things they probably should have and could have been doing while they were in those positions, they write their books later, and then they're talking about things that kind of old news, but maybe things that we should have heard about before. And for her to say that this is not a revenge kind of a book is a little hard for me to swallow. <laughs> yeah, it does. And really to say from this distance what the journalists were doing, if you had those journalists that she is now critiquing on the same show with her, I think it would be a different matter from having a friendly interview from Bill Maher. We would see things differently. Well, let me say one thing about the governor and then one thing about Melissa's book tour. Governor Andrew Cuomo saw kind of the lay of the land and resigned. And he could have stayed and fought. He could have gone on to an impeachment trial and defended himself. He opted not to. I think the critique about the press, yes, it was a feeding frenzy, but for good reason. There was a lot of fire behind that smoke. And it's very difficult for reporters to say, here's what the attorney general is saying. A very powerful office with dozens of investigators and the whole strength of New York State behind her doing this investigation. We're telling you what the attorney general is saying about the investigation. And it was painstaking and it took many months. There were some opportune leaks during that. But our job is to say what's going on. And that's, I think, what most reporters did during this very confusing set of weeks and then months. Now, in terms of the book tour by Melissa DeRosa, I agree with Barb. I think it's pretty risky as a reporter. And I know others disagree with me on this. I've had these conversations in the last few weeks. To have them on and their reputation management effort is a risk. Because if you don't do a very credible kind of Tim Russert-style interview with them, you risk muddying the actual historical record, which I'm sure is partially why she wrote the book. She says she wants to set the record straight. The other part of it is maybe something I'm just taking personally, but the whole book is complaining about the coverage that the Cuomo administration got. So then you're allowing the person to use you as they complain about you to bolster the reputation. 
Yeah. You know, that's a very good point. If you move in and, and interview somebody who is doing a book like this and interview that person the way you usually interview a book author, why did you write this? What do you think about this? If you interview them as an author instead of as a public figure, you're giving them so much credence. You're giving them an amazing amount of airtime or space in print. And it then is impossible to really get a picture of the truth, which is what we strive for in journalism. You're giving too much time now. Okay, so we're giving balance then. You're, you're letting Melissa DeRosa have her say that she feels she didn't get fairly when she was in public life. I don't know. It is a perilous thing to interview a politician writing, which she is, writing about what they did so recently and trying to get it right. I think it's very difficult. And I think it's too easy to blame the media for Cuomo's resignation. I think he came to the point where his numbers were down, his popularity is down, he's facing possible impeachment, and he decides politically and personally what's best. Time to cut your losses and move on. Hmm. It's not the media's fault. Right. It's not the media's fault. We are reporting what's going on as opposed to creating this. Understandably, this is the way that people understand what's going on is through uh, mass media. But that reporting that is fair and fundamental in its time can be held up to a negative light later by people who don't have access to all the information. And if you're doing a 20-minute or a 30-minute or even an hour-long interview with an author, you don't have time to get into all the details. But it is difficult when you're interviewing a politician in any case. It's hard to get at the real issues to hold their feet to the fire because on the one hand, you want to be fair to them and let them have their say on the issues. On the other hand, their goal is not to tell the truth. It's to get elected. What a shame that those are mutually exclusive <laughs> goals. <laughs> yeah, thank but, you. but you're absolutely right. right. And they will filibuster. Mm -hmm. They will not answer a question, but simply say what it is that they want to make oh. sure it gets across. And you're trying not to be rude and not interrupt absolutely. them. It is a challenge. That's the most frustrating. When I was a young man, I was an editor of a little tiny newspaper in Indiana. And the congressman from that district invited me to become his press secretary. And I remember the first meeting I ever had with political consultants sitting in the congressman's living room. And they told him that when a reporter asked him a question, don't answer the question. Tell him what you want to say. Answer the question you wish you'd been asked. I could have been a consultant. I was astounded. You could have. You could have. You would have made a lot of money. I had no idea, being a naive young man, that that's what is exactly the tactic, is say what you want to say. Never mind what the question is. Turn it around to your point of view. So we start at a great disadvantage as journalists. You know, we find ourselves constantly trying to pry our way in because very few people in public life are really interested in talking to you about the issues fairly. They, they're trying to convince you. And I think that the format for some of these interviews is also problematic. And when reporters say they're well prepared with their list of questions, but there's a tendency to want to get through all of your questions in the limited time that you have. And what you're missing is the follow-up to the questions or the calling somebody on. They might have a response to something that doesn't jibe with reality or the truth or facts that you have on hand. And you want to be able to go back and point that out in real time yeah. during that interview. So I'm not, I'm not talking about necessarily a live interview that's broadcast, but even if it's a taped interview. Right. And Ian mentioned something that or, you know, is... Not tape, you know, tape for a reporter, a print reporter writing it, whatever. Yeah. Well, Ian mentioned this as being difficult, what you actually say to people as you're interviewing them. The interview. I always felt fortunate being a print reporter in the days when print was just print, that people who were reading my stories didn't hear my questions. 
because sometimes you ask a provocative question. Sometimes you would have the advantage of saying something that would elicit a response, but the question itself would sound hostile to somebody hearing it. Sometimes the very best question that you can ask is, huh, why do you say that? And that's not actually a very good I was always overwhelmed by other reporters who would jump in and ask really bright, probing questions. But if you ask a question that sounds kind of hostile when you're being taped, that is, uh, <laughs> that's negative. That is hard, right? But I teach my, well, I don't know if I teach them, but I say to my journalism students to be a two-year-old and ask why. And that your follow-up question is often should be, mm-hmm. why do you say that? Why do you feel that way? Why did you vote that way? Why do you believe this? And trying to draw them out, it helps if you're better prepared with the <laughs> with the information yourself, yeah. but trying to draw them out is legitimate and useful. There's a couple of schools of thought on this, and I'll say as someone who's doing the Congressional Corner series now, I'm learning from hearing my interviews back uh, every single time I do one of these with someone who's elected or wants to be elected. And I think you try to sit in the fact questions, you know, specifically getting them pinned down on a position, a vote, or that kind of thing is much better than open-ended feel questions. But other people who have done these think, hey, the listeners are pretty smart. They're pretty savvy. They will hear for themselves the way this certain question is answered. And yeah, you could interrupt them and say, no, it's actually 3.9, not 4.2. Or you could let the listener come to a conclusion on their own about whether this person is peddling something we can't say on the radio. And I think the Trump years (laughs) kind of ended that school of thought. But there's one other problem, which is all of us are in the content business and there's always a tension that the folks will ghost you. As I've talked about on the show before, Elise Stefanik was a regular Congressional Corner guest and has not been on since February of 2017. So that's someone you can't count on to come on and speak to the listeners. And ultimately, from my perspective, I'd much rather have a really hard interview where maybe I didn't hit it out of the park with them, but I know they're coming back in December to answer more questions as opposed to they never come back again. And that's it for our listeners getting to hear from their congressional representative. It's a fine line, isn't it? It is. I've been listening to some of your congressional interviews, Ian, and I think you've been doing a really good job with them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed with one that's airing recently is that there were a series of interviews usually. So you've taken, is it one conversation that you've pulled apart? We typically do three Three 10-minute interviews. Mm -hmm. And I like that the first one, you're introducing the person to the reader. It's We call them listeners here. (laughs) Right, listeners. Radio (laughs) equals listeners. Thank you. Yikes. We hope. Uh, So that it was not an adversarial interview, not that any of them need to be adversarial, but it was good. And then I was hoping that the next one would be asking tougher questions. And sure enough, you were. So I thought that's a good thing. You know, I always used to say to young reporters, the hardest thing on a beat is to write a tough story and come back Mm -hmm. the next day and get that person to talk to you. And there's an art to that. Reporters who can do that are, well, they're few, frankly. I greatly admire, for example, Brendan Lyons, managing editor of Investigations of the Times Union, because what he does is he tells the people he's interviewing exactly what the next story is going to say, even if it's going to be tough, because he reasons if they know that this story is going to be tough and they're not going to be surprised by it and they'll be more likely to talk to him. And it is interesting that sometimes a tough journalist, a tough interviewer still keeps people talking. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times somehow retains access to Donald Trump. Of course, he's deranged. 
Perhaps literally. So uh, <laughs> there's something different there, but, but she manages to keep sources talking to her, notwithstanding tough stories. But that is a fine line if you let someone walk all over you. And, and I don't know what you can do about Annalise Stefanik. She's clearly chicken. She clearly doesn't want to talk to anybody other than very friendly Fox News interviewers because she avoids the mainstream media who might ask her questions she doesn't want to have to answer. And it doesn't matter for her because her district is so overwhelmingly Republican that she's going to get reelected, I guess. She I also said explicitly when she got into this leadership role with the House GOP that one of the priorities would be to go to war with the media. And she's done that. Credit where credit's due. <laughs> <laughs> she keeps her word, right? There Although you go. I, I'd like to see in coverage of issues when you're trying to localize an issue and you want to let your listeners and or readers know because WMC has listeners and readers. We're a new media now. Yeah. So you want your audience to know that you tried to reach these people and, you, and that they declined to respond. So there could be a national issue. There's plenty of them going on. Then you want to know how your specific congressperson is voting or tends to vote on that or what they think about that. Then we should, in the media, be repeatedly telling people you know, Stefanik declined to comment. All right. Uh, you're listening to The Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. If you want to have your thoughts shared with us, media at wamc.org is how you do that. Barbara Lombardo is here. I'm Rex Smith with Ian Pickus of WAMC. We need to talk a little bit about the state of the media in terms of the decline of the financial model. We, we talk about this a lot, but there are just elements of that emerging all the time. Most lately in Rhode Island, two daily newspapers being merged into one. That is the Call of Woonsocket and the Times of Pawtucket are coming it's, together. It's Pawtucket. John Clark, my professor at Ohio State, yes. who had been in that Rhode Island, right? Yeah. Yeah. had said it's Pawtucket. Oh, you don't and do that the And that when paw? you're a reporter, when you're a reporter, <laughs> however they say, when you go out there, if you yeah. say Pawtucket, they're going to yeah. know that you don't know anything about the place you're covering. Well, and if, that, bagger, if you Pawtucket. go to that state where Las Vegas is, don't call it Nevada. Mm -mm -mm. Oh. That would be Nevada. Okay. I'll try to remember. Okay, Pawtucket Please, and Nevada. 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 All right. Anyway, so it's now the Blackstone Valley Call and Times. And this is just the latest incident of local journalism declining. These two newspapers that uh, used to have together uh, probably 30 journalists now have apparently two to cover that entire region. And, you know, we have seen a lot of this around in our own community. Uh, leading uh, to a decline in the ability of any kind of coverage in, in many areas. And it puts forward the notion that we need, I guess, philanthropists to come forward. You know, public radio relies obviously upon listener support and philanthropy, as well as a little bit of money from the government. Uh, but that has not been the model in the past for other forms of media. But it's still working for public radio, right? Yeah, more or less, I think it is working. And it's held up as kind of an example for other nonprofit startups. You know, this is how you can make it happen. Although I will say, public radio is not immune from haves and have nots. There are big stations that do fine, even the ones that have been in the headlines this year that have a $100 million budget. They're not going to lose their newsrooms when they slash a number of positions. The problem is the places that are 
one reporter who's running all the cuts and updating the website. And if that person goes away, that might be a community that has nothing left. And so there's increasingly this nationalized focus on building a, a network that collaborates, where people share resources, especially in statewide situations. And I think that's going to become the norm as we go forward. You know, I also think it, it has to do with a change among a sophisticated audience where you know, folks used to be very proprietary about their backyard station, and that's kind of melting away a little bit as, you know, they just plug it in uh, to their Bluetooth and listen to whatever is interesting. So, yeah, the good news, we've mentioned this before in here, a $500 million infusion of support for local news from a collaborative called Press Forward, which is 22 donors nationwide led by the MacArthur Foundation. I have announced that they've got $500 million that they're going to put out grant guidelines so that local news organizations can apply uh, for this. Now, $500 million is a lot of money, but realistically, that doesn't replace the network of small businesses that supported weekly newspapers and local radio stations that can't replace the ecosystem that has been obliterated by the digital revolution. But it's a step, you know, it's it's something. That, that was a hopeful step. The news about the two Rhode Island papers combining wasn't as disturbing as when you read into the story about it, how the staff is so teeny-weeny, as yeah. you mentioned, two reporters to yeah. cover everything that both newspapers. It becomes a daunting task, and who decides... Even, even with the organizations that are fortunate enough to get money from the MacArthur Foundation or other organizations that are supporting news organizations, how do you decide what to cover, what's news, what do people want to listen to or read? You know, it makes me wonder, you know, Barbara, when you were the editor of the Saratoga and you had a small staff, it's always been a small newspaper, but your coverage in your local area was aggressive and, and very thoughtful. And, and I wonder if some of the political chaos, if I can say it, that we see now in Saratoga Springs might be a result of there not being as aggressive a local media presence as there once was. Well, it depends on how you define the readership area, too. And I felt at some point that we were the best at covering the square block or everything you could see out the windows of our building. You, you, kept, you kept shrinking and shrinking, and there's, say, Saratoga County is 220,000 people or more now. And at one point, we could have said with some legitimacy that we were trying to cover all parts of the county and, and hold all those little governments and school districts accountable. And you had to keep shrinking and deciding on what it is you were going to cover. And it's only gotten worse. Yeah. Well, uh, cowboy's work is never done. All right. <laughs> Live to it. fight another day. That's it. And all those good sayings. That's all we have time for in the Media Project this week. Barbara Lombardo is here, Ian Pickus, and I'm Rex Smith. We are grateful to our producer, David Gustina. And we thank you folks for joining us and hope you'll come back again next week for the Media Project. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith. Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany. And WAMC News Director, Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go. 
To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>